when I joined this group of cooperative Unitarian Universalist clergy to share worship services this summer, it was my big idea to focus on movies. I thought, hey, it'll be fun. Maybe we can do movie nights or something. An easy way to tie in a bunch of services together. And it turns out it has been fun, but at first I really, really struggled to decide what movie I wanted to focus on. I changed my mind several times, and finally one of my coworkers said, what's Nevin's favorite movie right now? She was referring to my five-year-old son, Nevin, and wondering if that might give me some inspiration. The problem is, Nevin doesn't really watch movies. For whatever reason, he likes TV, but he just doesn't have many movies that he likes. Except The Nightmare Before Christmas. Don't ask me why, but this kid who is actually quite sensitive and has a lot of reasonable fears for a five-year-old loves The Nightmare Before Christmas. In fact, this summer, for his annual big adoption day party, the theme for the party is Nightmare Before Christmas. I wasn't even familiar with this movie until I met my husband a decade ago, but I have come to learn what a following it has. It is among those favorite Christmas movies that many people list alongside Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Miracle on 34th Street, and Die Hard. But this one, The Nightmare Before Christmas, is weird. I mean, I guess Die Hard is a weird for a Christmas movie, but I'm not here to judge. The Nightmare Before Christmas is also a Halloween movie. And in some ways, it's neither. See, I have a lot of empathy for Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King. He's good at his job, but he's bored. He's depressed. And I imagine living in Halloween Town would get depressing. It's always gloomy, spooky, creepy. There's no laughter except the prankster type. There's no jolliness, very little color or light. So I have empathy for the fact that when he finds Christmas Town, he is overwhelmed by the difference from his day-to-day -day life, and he is so excited by what he has discovered. Me, personally, I love the holidays. I love all of them. I love to deck out my house and decorations, put up lights and find festive shirts and earrings. For Christmas, yes, but also for Easter, Thanksgiving, and Halloween. My two biggest decorating holidays are definitely Halloween and Christmas. So I understand Jack's feelings here. I understand how he can love Halloween, but also long for something new. Have you ever felt that way? Kind of stuck in a rut, wishing for something more, 
something beyond your usual experience. Growing up, I was sort of strangely attracted to church and religion. My family weren't church-going people, and that was fine by my brother, but for whatever reason, I was the weird kid who wanted to go to church, who would do things like build churches in my closet and preach to my stuffed animals. I attended church with my friends and it felt good, but in elementary school, I remember inventing a whole new religion with my friend, Lindsay. We worshiped a goddess and we had all sorts of rules for what that worship entailed and forbade. I have no memory of how this came to be, but I remember that it didn't last long because my friend's family found out and their Christian faith clearly did not allow for the worship of random other gods. But I recall this memory from a place of empathy for what we are going to talk about today. The idea that sometimes our deep longings for something more can land in ways that are at best awkward and at worst harmful. How can we seek and find that more without causing harm? The scene that is my favorite in the whole of the movie, The Nightmare Before Christmas, takes place early on Christmas night. After much preparation, Jack has finally taken off in his sleigh, despite the thick fog, utilizing his ghost dog, Zero, whose bright red nose reminds us of Rudolph. And they're flying from housetop to housetop as Jack delivers the gifts that the residents of Halloween Town have prepared for the good children of the world. Jack slides down each chimney and carefully places the gifts in the stockings and under the tree. And early in the evening, a little boy sneaks down, hearing Santa, and he sees Jack. Stunned, the little boy can't even talk. But Jack just smiles his giant, toothy skeleton grin and says, Merry Christmas, and hands the boy a gift and then scampers back up the chimney. Jack is reveling in this joyful job. And that's one of the reasons I love this scene so much, his joy. But what Jack fails to realize is that the lights are switching on all over town, screams are following in his wake. His intention to bring Christmas joy has failed. And his impact is that he is actually terrifying people with each delivery of Halloween Town scariness. It's a funny scene, but it's also sad. It's sad that Jack is, for the moment, so oblivious to the harm that he's causing, thinking only about the fun that he is having. Many people in majority culture, white, 
cisgender, heterosexual Christian are inundated or surrounded by our culture as normative. It's all around us all the time, so much so that we don't even have to think about it. It just is. And sometimes that can feel boring. Many of the ancestors of those of us who identify as white immigrated to this country or came as colonizers, and they shed many of the particularities of their heritage and culture, their German customs or their Norwegian language in an attempt to assimilate into quote unquote mainstream culture. They did this as a way to survive and thrive in this country and they or their children reaped the benefits of that white assimilation. But that means that many of us white folks don't know our heritage. We don't carry with us much that is particular or unique. On the other hand, marginalized communities like people of color, religious minorities, the GLBTQ community, disabled folks, and others have had to maintain their cultural and religious heritage or carve out cultural space as a form of survival in the face of repeated attempts at erasure or elimination by majority culture. Recently, in late May, the discovery of a mass grave at the Kamloops Residential School in Canada brought to light again the horrific heritage of Indian residential schools. The fact that children, children were forcibly removed from families, abused, stripped of their language, their hair, their culture. This news reminds us all that indigenous North Americans and indigenous people around the world have had to fight heroically to maintain their identity and culture and their very lives. Something that many of us in majority culture don't ever have to even think about. I could name countless examples of the powerful and rich cultural and religious markers that marginalized communities have maintained or claimed in order to exist. Here are just a few. The Passover Seder for Jewish families and communities. Pride parades and celebrations for GLBTQ folks. El Dia de los Muertos or La Quinceañera for Mexican and Latino communities. Black power or Pan-African pride, Afros, locks, hip-hop music, Kwanzaa. These are only a tiny fraction of the examples of the ways that communities that experience harm and erasure have staked out their existence with pride and joy. But for those of us in majority culture, people like me, we fail to recognize the ways that we are constantly steeped in our own culture. It's not that we don't have one, we're just constantly steeped in it. 
Our holidays are celebrated publicly. Schools, banks, governments shut down in honor of the same holidays that I do. My relationship status, my marriage, my ability to parent are not questioned by authorities because of my gender or sexuality. The color of my skin, my ethnic heritage do not mark me for increased scrutiny by police or immigration officials. My name, my language, my accent do not prevent me from a fair shot at employment or housing. And so, when we feel bored, it is imperative that we find ways to create meaningful connections, rituals, and symbolism that are true to our own identities. Or if we are interested in forging true connections with cultural or religious experiences outside our own, that we do so very carefully and with a long path toward relationship first. Boredom or desire is not a good reason to borrow or take from other cultures. As Unitarian Universalists, we have a long history of participating in or encouraging cultural appropriation. Like Jack, we simply wanted to explore something new. An early universalist ancestor, Kenneth Patton, who wrote many of the readings in our hymnal and many that were in previous hymnals, famously converted the Charles Street Meeting House in Boston, a stodgy old church with pews, to a sanctuary in the round. He had a nebula, the nebula Andromeda painted behind the pulpit, and he created a workshop in the basement to collect or forge bronze symbols of the faiths of the world. His attempt was part of the early universalist movement away from Christianity alone to a more universal faith, one that could encompass them all. But in hindsight, that's a grandiose goal, and it lacks humility. Do we really think that we will be the ones to encompass everything? And this form of Unitarian Universalism has continued well into the 21st century, an a la carte approach to religion and spirituality. I have to often remind folks when I teach about our six sources of inspiration that despite the way they are listed, they are not a menu from which we can pick and choose. If we are going to have a Seder or celebrate El Dia de los Muertos or Kwanzaa, we need to do that carefully and with deep connection to people in our communities whose identities are connected to those practices. Otherwise, we risk spiritual or cultural tourism, or worse, voyeurism. Now back to our movie. Jack Skellington's intentions were good in trying to pull off Christmas himself. I believe the intentions of 
many people who culturally appropriate are also good. The intention is to learn, to put ourselves in the shoes of someone different from ourselves, to expand our understanding or to honor and celebrate the culture that is not our own. I know that these are the intentions because I have done it more often than I would like to admit. I'm not pretending that I am the one white person who has never participated in cultural appropriation. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh gosh, I've done that, don't beat yourself up. So have I. But back to Jack, despite his good intentions, his impact was harmful. He tried, he really did try to understand Christmas. One of my other favorite scenes is during the song, Jack's Obsession, where he tries to use the scientific method to figure out what this whole Christmas thing is about. But his limited perspective makes it impossible for him or for the residents of Halloween Town to really get it. There's just no way. He cannot take himself and his lifetime of Halloween out of the equation. His experience as a skeleton whose lifelong purpose has been to scare people makes his attempt at jolly joy simply not right. And when he forges ahead with his dangerously limited understanding, he harms the very people he was trying to help. This is classic cultural appropriation, well-intentioned, but with a limited perspective. As a straight person, I can have empathy for queer folks and joyfully celebrate for them at Pride, but what I don't get to do is host my own Pride party or dictate what Pride should look and feel like. As a white American, I can appreciate Black culture and the myriad gifts in our culture that Black Americans have made, but they aren't mine to try on as if they were my own. It would be insensitive of me to wear a kente cloth stole or put my hair in locks. If I'm invited to participate in my friend's family seder, I would warmly accept and do a little advanced reading so that I knew how to join in respectfully. But I won't be hosting a Seder at my own house. It's not mine. When people from marginalized communities call out cultural misappropriation, they are often met with defensiveness. That defensiveness comes from the fact that, as we said earlier, the intentions are often good. People are trying to learn, grow, or connect, but like Jack, those intentions aren't translating into positive outcomes for those who are being impacted. The impact of appropriation on marginalized communities is that they feel, yet again, minimized, marginalized, erased, or harmed by the inevitably clumsy way, the inevitably clumsy use of their community's culture or religion. When I say inevitably clumsy, I mean it. It's inevitable. 
When people appropriate, we always miss something. We miss the nuance or the subtlety or the background. Perhaps not even for lack of trying, but simply because our perspective is just that. It's our perspective. It's not the same as the perspective of someone who comes from that culture. Just like Jack doesn't really understand Christmas, I will never really understand Juneteenth. Even as I will expose my biracial black children to our community celebration of the Freedom Day so that they might come to know it as their own. But it's not mine. I have not lived my life as a black American. And I don't know the harm of that experience. So I don't get to borrow the joy of it. I'm going to say that again. I don't know. Not really in my bones. I don't know the harm of that experience. So I don't get to borrow the joy of it. The key to avoiding appropriation lies in relationship. Perhaps if Jack had taken time to get to know Santa Claus, they would have come to understand each other and each other's holidays more fully. Perhaps then Santa might have invited Jack into a participatory role in Christmas. And wouldn't that have been fun for him? But instead, Jack literally had Santa kidnapped so he could take Christmas for himself. And we do well to remember that we will always find deeper connection, deeper learning and growth, joy, and a way out of our boredom when we forge authentic relationships. Amen. And may it be so.